Hello and welcome to the latest AME Talking Health and Wellbeing podcast. I'm Dave Middleton, Chair of the Association of Medical Insurers and Intermediaries, or AME for short. AME is a health and wellbeing association with over 130 members, including all leading insurers and intermediaries. Our aim is to be the voice of the health and wellbeing industry. Today's subject is the impact of technological overload on our mental health, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Phil Hopley, Managing Director of Cognacity a Harley Street clinic that provides psychological and psychiatric services to both individuals and organisations. Phil, welcome. It's absolutely great to have you here. Morning, Dave. Good to be here. Phil, in preparation, I was looking through your CV last night. It's an amazing CV. You work with some amazing organisations. Just tell me a little bit about what you do and if you can tell me about the organisations that you, you work with. Yes, of course, Dave. So I am by training a medical doctor and my specialty is mental health. So I'm called a psychiatrist. I work with a team of people at Cognacity who have got a similar background, but also people who are trained in psychology, psychotherapy and allied professions. Anyone really that works around the well-being space that helps people to deal with their mental health in a positive way, but also to enable them to perform effectively under the common pressures of everyday life. So I spend about half of my time sitting in a clinic like I am today in Harley Street and half my time teaching people, coaching people, giving advice to executives and to boards and to organizations about, let's say, policies and the best ways that they can look after their most valuable asset, which is their people. We work with a range of individuals referred from different spheres, many by their doctors, many recommended by friends or family who've had the opportunity to use our services, but also a lot come directly to us from uh, private medical insurance companies because we've got a very good reputation in the market and from corporates that we work with. And um, I'm very fortunate, I think, in terms of my career because many years ago I used to play semi-professional rugby and I'm a, like yourself, I'm a bit of a sport nut. And I took the opportunity about 15 years ago to go back to working in sport, having missed it as a player. And so we now also look after 14 or 15 sports in the UK and overseas, um, helping athletes to maintain their well-being, to optimize their mental health and therefore to optimize their performance. Because in our view, those two things go hand in hand. So in any given week, I might be working with leading athlete from British Athletics, might be working with someone who's a very uh, experienced or up-and-coming professional rugby player or someone from the European Tour who's struggling with their form or the challenges of international travel, being away from young family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And in the corporate space, we work with a lot of professional services firms. So most of the uh, Magic Circle law firms, a number of the big four accountancy and consulting firms. And that's not surprising because just like the elite sports environment, these are very challenging environments in which to work. Brilliant. Interesting role you have, Phil. Very diverse. Indeed. I think it's quite kind of, I'm fortunate because I've probably got a mild form of attention deficit. So I like that stimulation of doing different things and having variety in my week probably keeps helps to keep me on track. So technology. I remember my dad telling me when I was born, he had to walk three miles to a red phone box to phone the hospital three days in a row to see if I was born and then walk back again and tell everybody in the street. Now, of course, we've got mobile phones and everything's done instantly. It's just a massive change over the last 50 years in that that regard. What are you seeing with the people that you work with? Technology is great, isn't it? And there's so many good things, but of course, there are also downsides. And and what what are you seeing with, with the people you work with 
in terms of the overload of technology and, and, and how it's impacting on their mental health? Well, you're absolutely right to say, Dave, that there are there are upsides and there are downsides. And I guess you could apply that to anything that we use in the workplace or in our social lives. If we don't get the balance right, we may run into difficulties. Interesting listening to your tale about your father. When, when microwaves were first available on the commercial market generally, my father was absolutely convinced that these things were going to be catastrophic, both in terms of the way they worked, the effect they had on food. So in our household, we had this great divide between those who would use the microwave and those that wouldn't use the microwave. What do we see in clinical practice? Well, I think it's, it comes as no surprise to the listeners to hear that there's been a significant upsurge in anxiety levels, particularly amongst teenagers and young adults in recent years. And we think one of the reasons, it's certainly not the only reason, but one of the reasons for that is the way in which interaction with digital devices and particularly social media has impacted on a couple of areas of people's lives. So first of all, you've got this sense of FOMO, fear of missing out, because people get to see what everybody else is doing. There's this worry that you're not doing the great stuff. There's the, there's then this sense of what, what is reality and what's not reality? The glossy stuff that everybody gets to see, uh, whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, people tend to spin it towards the positive. And of course, that's driven by the way in which um, contemporary media and entertainment focuses very much on lifestyle, on um, material gains, on the things that we have as a measure of our success. And I would say that that's not a very healthy outlook. And then the fact that the mere engagement with a digital device is taking you in the opposite direction of that very positive mental health protective factor, which is meaningful contact with others in the real world. So these things operating together potentially give us some understanding of why perhaps not just younger people and young adults, but a lot of people struggle with their mood and become anxious. There's this concept of living mindfully, which if you like is the antidote to some of the modern day stresses. And by living mindfully, we mean, Dave, to be focusing on the present moment, on the here and now, on one thing at a time, and to give your brain, give your mind the opportunity to pay attention meaningfully and mindfully to something. Now, if your brain is so exposed to multiple sources of stimulation because there are different social media channels, email contact, phone messages, WhatsApp, etc. It's very hard to operate in a mindful way. And what we tend to see is people either thinking about the future, what, well, what should I be doing? What should I be doing? Kind of fast forwarding their lives, which tends to drive up feelings of uncertainty, feelings of instability, feelings of anxiety. And on the other hand, people can get in a trap of thinking about what they've done, what's happened, what's passed, what they've missed out on, what they should have done, what they could have done better. And if we spend a lot of time reflecting back on things in not such a positive way, that's naturally going to pull our mood down. So you've got this this tendency of the brain to be drawn forwards and backwards in time, uh, which then unfortunately causes us to be to feel less stable and less grounded emotionally and mindfulness or living mindfully is a very effective antidote to that talked a lot about mindfulness in with previous people i've had on podcasts and i think for me it's a very difficult one to actually get into and and stop thinking about the future if i think about you know personal experiences of buying a car you know you look forward to buying the car and the best part of buying the car is looking forward to buying the car um you get in the car and you think oh after three weeks 
you don't clean it as often as you did in the first week. And then uh, you're looking forward to the next one. And you know, how, how do you stay in the moment? How, how do you remain mindful? Well, Dave, let's have a go. We can see each other on screen, but the listeners can only hear our voices. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step you through a very simple mindfulness practice. We're going to do it together. And the simplest way of practicing mindfulness is to just focus on the breath. So in a second, I'm going to encourage you to just close your eyes and to simply focus on any movement of your chest, any movement of your abdomen, any movement of air in and out of your nose or mouth. Nothing more than that. What will happen, Dave, is lots of thoughts will pop into your mind about your new car or about your dad and the phone box. In a sense, it doesn't matter. When those thoughts pop into your mind, recognize them, but just let them go and then say, okay, where should I be directing my attention? Come back to the breath. Come back to the breath. So we're just going to do it literally for a minute now. So take a moment, close your eyes, and just focus on your breathing. I'm going to do exactly the same. How was that for you? It was good, actually. It's quite therapeutic. What did you notice? What was happening with your thoughts? I did start thinking about my dad, and uh, I can't get a new car at the moment, so I started thinking about that. Then actually went a bit blank. Um, don't know whether you've ever done any hypnotism, but mm-hmm. um, you kind of, you know, I started really shutting. So it was almost nothing there for a little bit. That's good. I mean, being in that state of disconnect is exactly what we're seeking to do because effectively we're giving a proxy for the thoughts. We're saying, okay, now brain, focus on my breathing. The good thing about focusing on breathing is it tends to slow our breathing down and slowing our breathing down is really good physiologically and biochemically for our uh, neurological system and for our cardiovascular system. It helps to just take some pressure out of the system, you know, depressurize what's going on. But anyone that was doing that in parallel with us listening in would have probably noticed thoughts just popping into their head. And it's the understanding that a thought is just like a piece of data crossing our awareness and we can disengage from it. Just like an email that comes into our inbox or a pinging WhatsApp message that comes into our WhatsApp chat is something that we have the ability to choose whether we engage with it or not. Many people operating in the modern era just haven't worked that out, Dave. They haven't understood that we still can control what we do. We often talk about the tail wagging the dog in terms of technology. People become so addicted to that hit that they get with another like or another comment or another whatever. A colleague of mine at work many years ago, we were standing by the water cooler and um, and to this day I still curse Vince. Um, and he said to me, oh, he said, I see you've got a message. I said, what do you mean? And you're old enough like me, Dave, to remember this thing called a BlackBerry, which was a sort of precursor of a a handheld digital device. And I said, what do you mean, Vince? He said, well, the red light on the side of your phone is on or flashing or whatever. And I'd had this thing for about a year and I just never noticed it before. But that was a way that the phone could indicate to you that you had a message. And of course, from that moment on, I'm then primed to look out for the arrival of a new message because I now know what the red light flashing means so 
unfortunately, our brains are primed to, to like stimulation, to like things that release a little bit of dopamine. And we see these addictive cycles, not just with youngsters, but with older people. As I said before, I've got a bit of mild ADD. I have had to disconnect my Instagram. I've had to disconnect a number of games on my phone because I could see that cumulatively, I was just wasting hour after hour each week. It's really quite good that a number of devices now will track your your time engaging with the different elements of that device. It's very, very important that the dog continues to wag the tail, not the other way around. You mentioned addiction. And uh, when I think of years ago, I used to go out and my, my checklist was, uh, I've got my wallet, I've got my inhaler. Now, because I don't need my wallet because everything's on my phone, it's, I've got my phone and I've got my inhaler. My phone's never away from me. It's got everything on it everything as, as we all probably have and i'm quite frightened sometimes when i look at the screen time that i spend on there you know emails whatsapp look at you know uh, news feeds weather everything it's just always with me and i've spoke to other people about this too and i absolutely do believe it's an addiction um and i don't know what to do to get out of it because I've got five email addresses for the various things I do. And so you keep it on because you want to keep in touch and 24 seven. It's just, it's, it's great for keeping in touch, but it drives you absolutely mental. Yeah. I mean, look, here's a couple of suggestions. I mean, sometimes with addiction, we need to detox, don't we? And a digital detox is a very healthy thing to do. It doesn't often make people feel twitchy, but I was away for a weekend with my wife recently. And because of the nature of my work, I do need to check the phone from time to time. But I can go for three or four hours. And I know that people will find a way of contact me in an emergency. So I simply gave her my phone and she locked it in the safe of the hotel room that we we're staying in. And yes, for the first 15 minutes or so, you're, you're sort of a bit twitchy, bit twitchy. But the release and the sense of peace and the sense of disconnect that you get from being literally physically removed from your phone is fantastic. So I recommend that to, to everyone, particularly when you're spending quality time with those that are nearest and dearest to you, you know, your other half, children, family, etc. So that is definitely worth just trying experimenting with and seeing that even in those early moments where you feel panicky and anxious, actually that dissipates after a period of time and it's it's okay. The other one that I think is brilliant that we learned from colleagues of ours in the States is something called phone stack. Now there's nothing for me more annoying than going out for a night with friends and someone just being on their phone the whole time. I'm sure you've experienced that yourself, Dave. So phone stack is at the start of the meal. You stack your phones in the middle of the table. And the, the, the spoken and the clear rule is that if anyone reaches for and uses their phone before the meal has ended, they pay for everything. Phone stack. Give it a go. Have you ever paid for that meal yourself? Never. I'm Never. tight. I wouldn't want to do that. Has anybody... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. One of my brothers is infamous for this. We're always always hammering for it. So that's two, uh, three great um, coping mechanisms. What else have you come across, and what else other advice have you given um, your your clients? Well, the the really important thing is to recognise the value of of real human connection. It's something that's kind of fallen a little bit off our priority lists because of the way that there's this really potentially inflammatory combination of almost limitless work for people in work, almost limitless work, um, limited amount of hours in the day, and and the sense that you're going to be letting yourself down or not doing a job brilliantly unless you get everything on your to-do list done every day. So prioritizing is vitally important. And, and I think people are good at making lists, but how often do people actually look through that list and say, okay, these two things are essential. 
And if you're going to focus on things that are essential, I would say, I would argue, that you want to optimize your levels of concentration and attention to really make sure your performance for the essential things is key. So allow yourself 25 minutes, no more, with a timer, ideally a non-digital timer, like a little alarm clock or one of these kitchen timers, and switch everything else off and just focus on that one thing because that is the key to being able to work in a kind of unidirectional way. Otherwise, the distracted way of working, which we have, where you've got an email comes in, oh, the brain likes the dopamine hit, so it's going to look at it. Oh, it's quite important, but actually it's not as important as what you're working on. It's a very easy way of that distracting you and then your productivity falling away. So it then takes you longer to get through the stuff you do. So a couple of these chunks of time, often the morning is a good time to do this before you get a whole load of new emails coming in, will mean your productivity goes up. I like to do that in the morning and towards the end of the day as well. Also, Dave, being really clear about what is achievable and what's not achievable in a day and where your kind of endpoints are. Because how many of us have been in that situation where just before a holiday, you work three or four really, really long days, you know, up to nine o'clock or 10 o'clock or even longer for some people. And the effect is that you feel relief to have cleared a lot of the backlog of your work. But the impact is that when you go away on holiday, for the first couple of days, you're absolutely knackered. Quite often people pick up a sort of cough or a cold or a minor upper respiratory tract infection because they've just ground themselves down. They've burnt themselves out. So what we're saying is we are trying to protect the important part of our lives, which is quality time with others and downtime, by getting more organized in the way that we approach our work. Culture is something that I love to talk about. I can't specifically define it because it's not black or white but when you're talking to organizations that you work with about this kind of thing and everything that you've just explained how do you get them to understand the impact of the constant emails or the whatsapp groups that uh, they're on with their colleagues and and to maybe think about changing and then think about putting in place policies to to stop it impacting on on their their workforce their colleagues yeah it's a really good question but i mean policies never work people follow what leaders do there's this old saying you know do as i do not as i say yeah you have to explain to leaders you have to coach leaders very effectively that they are literally under scrutiny from the minute they log on to the minute they log off the minute they arrive in the office the minute they, they, they go back and that's really crucial so if you can get leaders adopting a number of these important behavioral approaches and one of the most important is to say and this was something that we really hammered home during covid because everyone went to working on teams zoom whatever platform to say a meeting is an hour long but it must end at 55 minutes how many meetings you've been in where you, you're late for the next one because someone managing the agenda of the first meeting has not really managed it effectively. You must finish that meeting with five minutes to go. You must give people permission and scope to get up and leave their desk. And if you every hour take a two to three minute break where you leave your desk, open the window, step outside, go into another room, speak to someone, go to the water cooler, read WhatsApp, see a funny joke, listen to some music anything to break that continuous train of thought that recovery built up through in the day is phenomenally powerful and restorative and it will build up your resilience during lockdown i became the king of the laundry because i could get a load 
into the washing machine in a five minute break and then it would be done in that hour and they could get it out and hang it out to dry next time as the king of laundry now that we're back in the office i'm not quite the golden boy but anything and, and you can't think about work when you're doing the laundry otherwise you leave a red sock in with a white and then you're really not popular then you went home and blah 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 so anything that takes your focus off this thing the laptop the desk the work that we're doing regularly throughout the day that is the panacea for daily recovery recovery should not be weekends and holidays it should be a commitment to everyday activity because this is what elite athletes do dave elite athletes the reason they're so resilient is because they pay themselves to recover they don't train seven hours a day continuously they train intensively they rest they train intensively they rest they have other recovery strategies but the rest is the absolute sine qua non the number one golden ticket to recovery i remember um when I first heard you speak about 15 years ago, you were talking to a, a group of lawyers and uh, you threw that question out, actually, why do execs burn out quicker than top-level athletes? And uh, nobody got it in the room. I mean, it's simple when you know it, isn't it? But yeah, resting. Mm. Like, you don't get Premier League footballers playing five days in a row, do you? Or even Sheffield Absolutely Wednesday footballers. Not. I'm Absolutely saying that because James runs our podcast and he, uh, he supports Sheffield Wednesday, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, rest and relaxation. But it, that's easier said than done, Phil. Dave, why are, you, why are you saying that to me? Why is it easier said than done? What stops uh, you from doing it, Dave? Well, me, isn't it? There you go. Permission from self. It's not about yeah. the culture. It can be in some instances, but really we have to get much better at giving ourselves permission to do it. And if you've got a tricky boss or a manager, you say to them, look, my health and well-being and performance are all tightly linked into me managing my energy levels best. Do you want me to be making mistakes at five o'clock this afternoon because I've worked continuously and got a bit more work done and then I drop the ball massively at the end of the day? Or do you want me to be firing on all cylinders at the end of the day because I've taken some short breaks? Your choice. Yeah, it's a tough one for some people to do. It depends on the boss, doesn't it? But yeah, I, I it, totally get what it, you're saying. It is, but you know what? There's there's a, there's this movement now in the workplace that, that more and more and more and more people are getting confident to talk about the importance of their mental health as a driver of productivity and performance. We've been working with one of the Formula One teams the last three years, and the culture there has shifted massively because simply people now understand the science behind this. This isn't a nice to have. This isn't a, or oh, wouldn't it be great if. This is hard edge science that's showing you how human performance can be optimized. It's just important for the F1 drivers at McLaren to be at the top of their game when they're driving their car, as it is for the managers of that team, the directors of that team, to be making good decisions in the four days leading up to the race, as it is for the pit crew to work really hard on the car throughout the week, but then during the race to be absolutely razor sharp on their focus because they're rested and recovered mentally so that they can get that wheel on and off in under 2.8 seconds. I mean, you talk about technology, they must have the absolute um, nth degree of technology in what they do and it impacts them every minute of every day, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it's a real it's a real kind of battle is the wrong word, but it's a lovely challenge, particularly with the engineers who are desk bound, who've got the role within that setup that's probably closest to a lot of people listening into this um, podcast to get them to see the critical value of taking regular breaks throughout the day, because our brains are hardwired to assume that hard work looks like continuous work. It doesn't. Ineffective work looks like continuous work. Effective work looks like working well, taking regular breaks. What's the biggest thing you've done with, with your Formula One client? What, what, what's the biggest advice and techniques that you've given them to, to 
perform at their optimal level? Number one is the recovery piece. Number two is creating a culture where people do not feel inhibited to ask for help, to understand that it's okay to not be okay. Because it's better for someone to be having a bad day and to talk about it to someone like me or one of the mental health first aid champions that work within that group than it is to bottle it up for two weeks and then have a complete meltdown in the middle of a race. Technology has enabled us to have this conversation easily. It's enabled hybrid working post-COVID and it enabled us to work during the pandemic, which was absolutely fantastic. And now we're in this hybrid environment, which is a challenge, I think, um, because of the, the things that you mentioned earlier on about interaction with people. You know, When I was growing up and coming through my career, actually, I learned so much in the office and, and was supported by colleagues in the office with through mentally and with, with knowledge and skills etc what are your thoughts on, on the hybrid working world and, and the challenges that bring and what can an employer do to, to ensure that their employees are in the best possible place uh, balance is key dave as with all these things just like technology the same applies to home-based versus office-based working if you are simply working remotely you are losing out massively on two key things for your mental health one is that socialization, being around other people and being able to learn passively and to have the connections, the things that are really good for our brain. And secondly, you're working in isolation. So the chance of you getting the support you need quickly or for someone spotting that you might be struggling are definitely diminished. So we advise all of our corporate clients, they should be aiming for at least two and a half to three days a week of face-to-face in the office work a lot of people really enjoyed working remotely and they find that difficult because it's a bit more suitable for their lifestyle or for their family whatever but in terms of well-being and performance and productivity balance hybrid is definitely the best brilliant i mentioned before we came on on air that uh some of the content of this podcast was as a result of my discussion on father's day with my two kids and I promised them I'd ask you a couple of questions. So I'm going to finish off with their two questions. The first one is, uh, what's the best piece of advice you've been given personally around mental health? You know, the best advice often comes outside of professional circles. Best piece of advice around this came from my parents when I was quite young. And that was to really just be open and to ask for help and not to feel you have to personally carry the load for everything because the old maxim of problem shared is a problem halved is just so true. It's so, so true. It means you're going to get the support you need earlier. It means hearing something spoken out loud by yourself and then repeated back to you often then makes it seem like far less of a challenge than it is when it's running around inside your mind. So it's really good to talk. That's best advice I've been given. Brilliant. Parents are great, aren't they? Just talking through if you do talk to them. Final question, if you were to talk to your clients today, what's the one thing that you would say to them to improve their happiness? Quite open question, that one. So let me approach this in two ways. For, for individuals, I would be encouraging them to stop and think about what really gives them a sense of value. Because happiness, let's translate happiness into contentment. All the evidence suggests that happiness is not achieved through material gains. It's not about the new car that you buy. It's not about the new house you move to. It's not about the wealth you acquire. And I have to say, I've worked over the years with some phenomenally wealthy people who are deeply unhappy because they have worked in the pursuit of material financial gain. And the source of happiness and contentment does not lie there. It comes from doing things that we value. And for a lot of people, 
majority of people, that's about experiences and shared living with people that are close to us, people that we love, people that love us. It's having those sorts of connections. So that's what I'd say at an individual level. At a corporate level, I'd say it's really important to prioritize your people's well-being. It's really important to get down and understand what it is you're asking them to do, what circumstances they're having to work with. The best organizations we work with have hierarchies, but the people at the top really do understand what's happening at grassroots level at the coalface. They understand what it's like to be a junior working X number of hours on a challenging project, mostly because they've been there themselves, but also because they're not just sitting isolated with an external view, thinking about their external stakeholders and their shareholders, etc., etc. So understand what it is and just relate to people in an honest way. So recognize the challenges they've got and meet them halfway explain to them that you understand where they are and be open to taking feedback enable them as my parents inform me to be able to talk and to be open about things phil it's amazing and so enjoyable to listen to you talk and i want to thank you so much for for taking time out today you are coming to our summit in in november so looking forward again to to hearing you speak then but thank you so much for, for for coming on today my pleasure dave and don't forget to take your breaks today and breathe (laughs) absolutely so thank you everybody for listening Uh, i hope you enjoyed that podcast please look out for future podcasts on apple spotify and for amy members on our website